I don't know, it's quite, you see, because I got the first series of Crazy People scripts out just for research, really, because I've never heard it. Yes, I see. Crazy people wasn't so funny. No, I agree. I agree. But if you did it and said, yeah. like, the first goon show of all or whatever it is, and said a selection of material from crazy people or whatever it is, rather than go for the first script. I see. Well, very interesting. I must say that as an experiment. Yeah. Would you opt in on it? What I've done to help you, Dirk, whatever, whatever gives you. I'm very easy. I'm very malleable. Well, I'm in a different shape every day. I'm just <laughs> lucky I'm like this today. My guest this week is the legendary, much lionized producer and writer, Dirk Maggs. The master of cinematic audio, Dirk is an innovator and a risk taker and has developed a particular slap you around the face style of soundscape in a career spanning over four decades. Can anyone else claim to have produced such a breadth and diversity of work, including adaptations of Neil Gaiman, Agatha Christie, Stephen King and Douglas Adams? as well as bringing the Marx Brothers to new audiences and creating audio comic books featuring the likes of Superman and Judge Dredd. And when the definitive history of the goons is written, Dirk will loom large in terms of helping introduce the show to new audiences and preserving it for future generations. No stranger to trophies, just last year he was awarded the Best Audiobook Producer Award at the BFI in London. Former guest Ian Billings has described him as the Spielberg of sound, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the show, Dirk. Thank you, Tyler. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for asking me aboard. I was worried that I'd been shut out of the Goon Pod, Goon Show legacy, and I couldn't come on and tell you how much I love the Goon Show and uh, indeed the Goons themselves. So, Dirk, let's 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 start at the now first, and then we'll go back to the beginning. I know you've been working a lot with, as I said before, Neil Gaiman. What are you working on at the moment? Uh, well, um, we're just about to release The Sandman Act 3, which is Neil's, um, you know, huge comic book saga, which he wrote in the late 80s and up to the mid 90s, based on an old DC Comics character that he sort of completely reinvented. Um, and we've, we've just, yeah, we're just about to release our third series. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a huge, it's an 11 and a half hour epic. And being Neil, it has everything in it, including several kitchen sinks, uh, worth of uh, mythology, both, both Neil's own mythology and real mythology. Is there such a thing as real mythology? Mm. Mm. Uh, but um, I'll get back to you on that. Yeah, Norse, Greek, you name it, it's in there. And, uh, um, you know, you talked in your intro about this sort of audio movie style of doing things. This is so, so vast and so full of different stories uh, in the last um, series in act two we went from revolutionary france to ancient rome to uh, modern day america road trip stuff it's just amazing it's um a, such a privilege to work on it and it's also the scariest thing i've ever done because it has absolutely diehard fans who 
who know everything. If you take one full step, they know where you are. So um, it makes working on um, uh, Douglas Adams stuff, which I have in my time, uh, like a walk in the park in some ways. <laughs> working on Hitchhikers at that time, uh, just before social media really kind of took off in terms of, yeah, it, it was very interesting because the fans really resented somebody getting the box of Lego and building stuff with it, even though I was working along instructions from Douglas. Um, and, um, and actually, uh, interestingly, over the last 15 to 17 years since we did it, it's become canon what we, you know, what I had to introduce to help square the circle of some of the stuff that the loose ends Douglas left hanging. Mm. Uh, and at the time, it was really, you know, quite, um, quite vicious. But then after a while, it settled down and, and the worth of it came out, I think. So um, actually, it's been quite a, a smooth ride with Neil. But then the big advantage with Neil is that he's still alive. I can talk to him, mm. you know, yeah. I can actually pick the phone up which is obviously when Douglas passed on, not something I could do with Douglas. Wasn't there, wasn't there some story before you got fully on board with Hitchhikers mm. that there was a, an early draft script that included dinosaurs? Yeah. Like that? Well, it was before I volunteered to write it, yeah. uh, another writer was brought aboard who was a really well thought of, very lovely man, very nice guy and a very good writer but he didn't get hitchhikers and so his draft script for the first or the third series involved a talking dinosaur he needed someone for arthur dent in, in prehistoric islington to talk to yeah and so he introduced a talking dinosaur and the script arrived uh, with me in radio light entertainment uh, on my desk in 1992 uh, having discussed all this with Douglas and I thought I don't think this is going to fly but Douglas should see it so I couriered it over to Douglas's uh, house in Duncan Terrace and uh, about 40 minutes later I heard the explosion <laughs> and um, and Douglas on the phone come over come over at once come over at once so I went over to the house and Jane, his wife, who was just going off to do a case because she was a barrister, mm. opened the door on her blacks uh, in a barrister's gear. And she said, he's downstairs. Um, so I went downstairs and Douglas bang away on this old Mac laptop, you know, one of the old black ones with a clamshell lid. <laughs> yeah. And he's banging away and, and he got to about page three of a script. And and, uh, and, he, and then he slammed the top of the MacBook closed and he said, I can't write this fucking book twice. And um, and I said, it was the talking dinosaur, wasn't it? He said, it's awful. It's awful. I can't believe he did that, you know, and all this stuff. And it was really a, a weird moment because it's seeing someone in sort of almost physical pain from, from having their work traduced I suppose mm. although that wasn't the intention of the writer I know he just was finding a solution to a problem mm. um and and what Douglas wanted was a straight translation of the book it was pretty simple really no one had to you didn't have to gild the lily mm. um and that's what I said well you know I could do it you know uh I don't mind even if and if you like what I've written and want to say it's yours that's fine but I could do it as long as I get paid you know so it's quite fortuitous 
this, this talking dinosaur. Yeah, well, it was, except then the whole thing fell apart because there was a real problem with the rights. So we didn't actually eventually make this, or I didn't even write it till the mid 2000s. Um, and of course, Douglas died in 2001. So mm. it was really a bit sad because yeah. we talked it all through. I knew how he wanted to do it. I, you know, I, I, I had it all in my mind, but um, he wasn't there anymore, which was horrible. Mm. I want to ask you about. First of all, I want to ask you about the making of the Patrick Moore story. The Patrick Moore story, mm. which, 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 which the, the radio version of the, the radio thing. Well, no, didn't you, didn't you get a cine camera when you were a teenager? Yes. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I was really confused. <laughs> I didn't even know you, I didn't know it was common knowledge that we made a film called well, the Patrick Moore story. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cause you mentioned about the Sandman, you mentioned, um, Norse, oh. Norse mythology, and I believe you, you did a version of Najol's saga as well, didn't you? No. Didn't you? Uh, well, well uh, we did we did do a Norse myth, a, a Norse story, but it was about, um, it was, <laughs> how amazing, where did all this information come from? You, you've obviously read up very closely. Um, when I was at school, when we were 16 in the early 70s, um, I just wanted to make films. I really fancied making films. And so just brought in the family cine camera, which was a standard eight. It was that old. And, um, and with a bunch of mates, we just said, oh, let's do something. And, and we saw that Patrick was coming to open a fate at Ardingly College. We were in Haywards Heath Grammar yeah. School Filmmaking yeah. Society in, in um, mid-Sussex. And Ardingly College was a bit up the road. And it was the local sort of private school and weird coincidence department. It is the school that Neil Gaiman attended and indeed oh, right. might even have been there on the day we attended their school fate, which was opened by Patrick Moore, who descended in oh. a helicopter. So we went and fiddled about, fiddle asked about and, and, and did this, took some footage of Patrick arriving. And then we thought we should make, you know, cause there were all, all these you know, the, the, the Al Jolson story or the Benny Goodman story <laughs> or whoever, Glenn Miller story, you know, mm. all these things. So we said we should do a story. So I, I'm, you know, we just went around our houses and I had to be Patrick because my face most resembled his without when I didn't have a beard and put a bit of elastoplast over one eyebrow and, and, and painted an eyebrow sort of more <laughs> cocked up. Um, and um, and did this film. But the, the thing is, of course, at that time, because there'd been all these other story films, we had all sort of silly gags in it. Like, you know, uh, when, when we had uh, Patrick's parents being seen, uh, the the midwife comes to announce the baby has arrived. Uh, it's very sketchy knowledge of how biology works, mm. I think. <laughs> um, uh, the parents came out and one was... Um, uh, uh, Hitler, <laughs> the father was Hitler, and the mother was somebody in blackface, which is terrible. Yeah. But at the time, because mm. there was the Al Jolson story, and this was supposed to be a story film, you know, this was all the provenance on it. And it's the early 70s and so on and so forth. And cringe, cringe, cringe now to think about it. But, you know, that was what we did. But, you know, this was the start. And then we showed this effort with some sort of crude soundtrack cobbled together on an old Akai reel-to-reel at the school fair that, you know, a few weeks later. Yeah. And it ran about eight or nine minutes or so, and it was, it was you know, pretty rough. Um, but we, we had such fun doing it 
and you know again and a lot of the influence then was from monty python and all those python historical things you know like attila the hun and mm -hmm. and all of that with the gags and that we we really that was very influential and so we, we decided we'd do a, a viking epic um so we came up with this script called they came and went where the vikings invade and the celts are trying to think of revenge and so they put uh cascara in the vikings mead so when the vikings have their victory banquet they will have to rush off to the loo which <laughs> seems to be you know a means of defeating them but it was great because everybody dressed up and we had i don't know probably about 30 of us and i i drew up a sort of plan whereby you could make an, a viking outfit out of you know, find an old bed sheet for a cloak and make stuff out of cardboard, dustbin, lead shields yeah. and so on. Yeah. Anyway, um, I'm rather proud of what we ended up with in 1972 or one or whenever it was, which was, um, you know, which actually runs about to 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And um, we had a full scale battle on Ditchling Beacon with Vikings and Celts and so on. And um, you know, adding sound effects and what have you, it was really fun. It was definitely influenced by Python, definitely influenced by the goons. And it sort of made me want to do, you know, to make storytelling my my career. What I didn't know was I'd end up doing it in sound only. That's fine by me because it worked out well. Yeah, totally. So do these, do these films still exist? Yeah, they do. I mean, you know, only for private consumption. Though. <laughs> I, I think well, I think the Viking one could be seen. You know, we started an abortive um, gangster movie the following year, but then we had to do our A-levels, so that went out the window. Right. But, okay. um, but no, the Viking one's good. I mean, the, the Patrick one, I, I didn't even show it to Patrick, and I knew Patrick quite well later on, mm -hmm. um, because I didn't want him to upset him, because it was just a bunch of lads being silly with a film camera, and it really had nothing to do with him at all. And you know, as I say, there, there was stuff in some of the early scenes, which was a bit upsetting. So there's a kind of cleaned up version that I've, you know, shared with, with, with the gang okay. um, back then. But um, yeah, it's not something I, I want to be remembered for, to be honest with you. You wanted to be a storyteller of sorts and you got into audio, but I know you worked in, you worked on BBC TV for a, for a yeah. time, but you found that a bit of a chore. Yeah, I did. I, I, I was working in, um, presentation which means basically stitching together either two halves of the job one was making trailers for things and one was stitching together the evenings programs on bbc one or bbc two in pres a and pres b studios in television mm. center back then with these tiny studios and i was there for uh, ooh, uh between uh, 1981 about 18 months really and i thought oh i'm going to go into drama i want to go to or children's television i wanted to get into the storytelling bits Mm. Of telly, but I just found Telly Center. It's never been a place, you know, everybody's so nostalgic about it and so on and so forth. And I get that if you work there, you get attached to somewhere, but I, I found it cold and, um, and slightly uninspiring, uh, which is sort of terrible thing to say, but I did, frankly, I did. And, um, and I just thought I'm having, I, I had more fun in audio really. And the other things I was playing drums in bands. That was my other thing. And I was in a couple of bands at that time playing around London, you know, and uh, so 12 hour shifts were not very, you know, kind of helpful. And I'd met, you know, the girl I wanted to marry. So I just sort of pulled off back in, you know, back to radio again. Um, and I, I didn't miss telly at all. I thought I wanted to work in films and television 
And I'd already spent uh, a month on a film set in Toronto on a, a Donald Sutherland film and been bored out of my tiny mind. Uh, the only useful skill I came away with was how to lace up a Panavision magazine for a film camera, you know, which is <laughs> sort of a skill you're not called upon much to perform these <laughs> days. particularly. But, you know, it, it was that was um, it was amazing to me. It, it wasn't for me in a weird sort of way. And yet, uh, you know, when I was at college, I was at Teach Training College, as it was in Winchester, King Alfred's, which is now University of Winchester. We'd run a television station uh, doing a weekly news program, which was really fun to do. And I'd enjoyed that. But that was because we were kind of bucking the odds. We did it against we didn't have permission to do it. It was kind of a pirate operation. And mm -hmm. I think that was the fun of it. You know, we, we, we actually were laying coaxial cable at three in the morning across the roofs of the student union and the other buildings to get the signal from the TV studio to the student union. That was rather fun guerrilla kind of filmmaking and I, I think sure. I'd still like to do that yeah but when it gets formalized god it's boring yeah 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 it's amazing how little events little occurrences can have such a profound effect on people's careers future careers mm. you you went to work for radio 2 doing trailers I believe yeah um, yeah yeah and and, you, and there was this campaign called crime check yeah, yeah. Was, was, is it fair to say that that campaign kind of set your career yeah. on the road that it that it took yeah i mean it's just, it's the weirdest thing it's like the slowest domino topple in the world my <laughs> career it's so weird because i started i, I got into the bbc as a, a trainee studio manager which was basically you know studio technician uh playing in records or tapes or operating the desk was a was a dream far in the future you were lucky just to play stuff in and get the coffee and the tea um but um I, it was the only job I applied for coming out of teacher training college. I knew I didn't want to be a teacher. I thought I might be an actor, realized I didn't have the skill for that. Uh, applied for this job because a friend had got it somehow, got into the BBC. And I really don't think I'd get into the BBC now if, if I applied. I don't think they'd have me. Mm. I don't think I'm enough of a, I don't know. I, I don't think I, I would tick enough boxes for them. Right. But, um, but I managed to get in and that, kind of was the first top domino and then you know ruling stuff out with the next couple of dominoes no it won't be television no it won't be film and then you know my wife and I got married and we had a baby and I'm saying I just I've, I can't be a studio manager for the rest of my life because you know I'm not a technically adept person really I can operate the gear but you know I'm sure I can I, I can create more than this and then you know we had a plan that I would try and get into radio light entertainment but because that was too big a jump I had this interval where I worked at and thank god they gave me the job radio 2 presentation making trailers and it was enormous fun and we would make the standard kind of trailers like Ken Bruce would you know do a spoken trailer for some new thing in his show mm. we would just add a bit of music and package it up and put it on carts um uh, and uh but occasionally we would get a special campaign like the license fee campaign or you know crime check which was sort of neighborhood watch writ large on bbc radio too mm. and for that we were going to do a series of trailers and these trailers would feature the radio two announcers i'd have a duty announcer patrick lunt or um steve madden or whoever um and 
so we we do all the regular stuff in the morning you know ken bruce's trail or paul jones for the rhythm and blues show or whatever it was and then in the afternoon we'd leave the two trails that we could play with and have a bit of fun with them so for the license fee campaign we did the one minute lord of the rings which was you know just <laughs> a stupid idea but you know oh, the dark lord would like something special for his birthday oh let's give him a television license token <laughs> that sort of you know stupidity yeah, yeah. Uh, with big themes and sound effects you know sounding like huge this was before peter jackson i might tell you he ripped me off i mm. know he did mm -hmm. um but um but we also had this thing where we're doing this crime check and I thought, let's do lots of big old detectives, famous detectives. And I thought of Miss Marple and Poirot and Sherlock Holmes. And I said, oh, Batman's a detective. Wouldn't it be great to do Batman? So uh, because in those days, you know, being the BBC, you had to clear rights all the time. And I didn't know how to clear the rights on Batman. So I looked up what the phone number was for DC Comics in New York. So it was this, and which was in those days, like ringing Mars. You know, it was like completely impossible. So I rang, got put through to the International Affairs Department. A lady called Phyllis got on the line and um, and who too became a great friend and who introduced me to Neil Gaiman, I might add. Um, but Phyllis, so this was a phone call out of nowhere. Just me thinking, right, okay, International Directory Inquiries. Da -de -do -de -da. Um, and long story short, uh, I said, I'd like to do a Batman trail. And she said, well, actually one of us is coming over on their way to the Frankfurt book fair next week. So they'll be in London. So she could come and check. It's all right. And so we made it and a nice lady called Chantal turned up, listened to it and said it was okay. Meanwhile, in a hidden cave deep underneath the mansion on the outskirts of Gotham city. Holy frustration, Batman. Until the new crime computer is ready, how can we keep tab on the rising crime rate? That's the last circuit in place, Robin. Now to switch on for a complete picture of crime statistics worldwide. Holy global crisis! And we've got our hands full with Gotham City. If only people knew how to protect themselves. Wait, let's ask the computer. You're thinking, Batman. What does it say? It seems we have an ally in our fight. You mean Superman? Wonder Woman? No, the BBC. All next week, they're running a campaign on Radio 2 called Crime Check, advising people on how they can avoid becoming victims of crime and how victims can help themselves. Could this be the end of the dynamic duo? Is this where we hang up our utility belts? I doubt it, Robin, but let's hope people tune into Radio 2 next week for Crime Check. It's the bat signal! To the Batmobile, Robin! If only we had Crime Check here in Gotham City. And as she left to go on to Frankfurt, uh, she said, oh, by the way, next year's Superman's 50th birthday. You might want to do something for that. Not knowing that I was just in trailers. Mm -hmm. But me applying at that moment for light entertainment and part of the application for a production job at my tent was to pitch, be able to pitch ideas. You had to come in with three ideas to pitch. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, I thought, Oh, birthday Superman. Sounds like a good opportunity for a documentary. So I pitched it. And I got the job and the, the program was commissioned. And so in 1988, we did a thing called Superman on trial, which was the idea. The conceit was that it was a docudrama. You had Superman on trial. The defending attorney was Lois Lane. The prosecuting attorney was Lex Luthor, um, which if you know Superman means that his girlfriend's defending and his biggest enemy is prosecuting, <laughs> which also shows that the whatever um, night school they had in Metropolis in the late 80s turned out lots of uh, 
<laughs> amateur lawyers. Um, anyway, um, and we could then, in the context of the trial presenting as evidence, we could dramatize bits of the old Superman comics as evidence, um, which is what we did. And so, you know, th th that kind of began the ball rolling on my comic book connection, mm. which in turn got Douglas Adams interested in my work and um, asking me to pick up the reins on Hitchhikers because Jeffrey Perkins had gone off to telly. Yeah. And also through another route and yet strangely another protege of Douglas's was Neil Gaiman, who uh, was introduced to me by, by um, the lovely Phyllis, who's no longer with us. All, all these interconnections. It's so weird. Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, while I was at Radio 2, I first met Spike because oh. um, he was, we were doing Children in Need. Every year we had to do Children in Need. Uh, it, it was just getting um, celebs who were in doing interviews to do a little trailer for us. So, for example, Don Messick, who did the voice of Scooby-Doo. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I got him to be Scooby-Doo, you know, um, you know, <laughs> saying, come on, little children in need or whatever. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Didn't mean to do that. Um, uh, Don Don was lovely, and uh, oh, there's all sorts of great people like um, Pat Boone, the sort of oh, wow squeaky clean pop star who yeah. very you know very uh, Christian um, American Christian <laughs> type guy. By the time he came in, but he was lovely actually. He walked past a play of plate of really curly sandwiches <laughs> in the corridor outside the, the 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 continuity suites and said, "These look good." Pick one up and ate it. He said, "Boy, I'm hungry," and I thought. That's salmonella on a stick. <laughs> um, but Spike was in, and so I got Spike to... I wrote a, a, a quasi-Spike script um, saying, you know, um, hi, folks, it's me, you know, Spike Maligno, well-known typing error. I just all, all the good yeah. show, you know, stuff. Yeah. Um, stuck the Q theme over it, and that was one of the things. But that was my big thrill, meeting Spike Milligan, and I thought that would be it, you know. Yeah, well, I've, that's one tick off the bucket list at that time so that's the late late 80s yeah about 88 I think. yeah yeah so did you get did you get spike on form or did you get spike being um oh, difficult good, yeah no, good question it was 87 i remember now <clears throat> because by age i was in light end um i never had spike off form okay i am so lucky um he and he we got on incredibly well and i think it probably because he knew I loved him unconditionally. Um, you know, I never, I never asked Spike to do anything he didn't want to do. And I must have made it clear in my demeanor, probably the bowing and the approaching <laughs> only on my knees and leaving the room, walking backwards. <laughs> he, he knew that I thought of him as a minor deity. Um, but no, we, we, he was always very good with me. I did see him having moments with other people and um, and those other people getting very upset because Spike was being super hostile. But that seemed to me to be where he felt that his personal space in some way was being encroached upon. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. he needed that bubble around him. And you entered the bubble if you, I don't know, if you were vibrating at the same frequency, you were fine. If mm -hmm. you vibrated at a different frequency, he would be defensive and then look out. So, yeah, but never a problem with Spike. Always just lovely, really, actually, to be mm -hmm. honest. Well, he was, a, he was a massive 
fan. He was always promoting in the early nineties flywheel shyster and flywheel. Yeah. Um, well, that was, that was the, that was the interesting one because um, we, I did a documentary about the goon show in 1991 for the yep. 40th anniversary called at last the go on show. Mm-hmm. And uh, the researcher was Mike Poynton, uh, sadly no longer with us, Michael Poynton, just the nicest, one of the nicest people on the planet. And um, a fine trombonist and also an authority on the comedy of the era. In fact, um, it was Michael who who took uh, Max Wall to lunch and Max died as they were leaving the restaurant, oh, which God. was terribly sad. But, you know, that was Mike. He was really into that sort of thing. I wanted to do a 40th. I was desperate to do something about the Goon Show, desperate and once I was in light entertainment and Spike was, you know, in doing stuff, the Milligan papers was happening. And usually it would be Jonathan James Moore producing Jonathan, who was, was either head of department then or about to be, and who was a huge friend to me as a producer in the department. He really encouraged me because I was a very square peg in a round hole because my contemporaries were Amanda Yunucci and David Tyler and Lisa Evans. And, um, people who were doing really cutting edge comedy Mm. and cutting edge comedy didn't interest me in the least. I didn't want to do it. It didn't, it it didn't make me laugh. Well, uh, Armando would have been doing what on the hour? Yeah. On the hour and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. yeah. Anyway, it was, you know, I mean, it was obviously he's a genius, you know, it's great. It just wasn't for me. It didn't Mm -hmm. work for me. Um, And uh, I wanted to do, I don't know what I wanted to do. I wanted to do stuff with gags in. That's that's the comedy I like. And the very first thing I was given was a thing called the Long Hot Satsuma, which was um, Barry Cryer, Barry Cryer, Graham yeah. Garden, Paul B. Davis were the writers and uh, joined by uh, Julia Hills and Alison Stedman. Alison. Yeah, mm. that was and that was both lovely and very scary because, you know, my comedy godfathers, thank God were Barry and Graham and, <laughs> and Paul and and Barry kind of took me led me by the hand it, it, typically Barry into the world of comedy right before <laughs> ah. oh, we go into the main business of the day I have a feeling the discussion may take more than just one yeah. meeting mm. so uh, mm. might I suggest we look at our diaries mm. and try to sort out a mutually convenient date to get together again okay. Good idea. Right. Yeah, right. right right can anyone make next Tuesday no all right, Wednesday. Yep, yeah, that's fine. Yep, good for me. Yep, fine for me too. No, I'm sorry, it's chocker. All right then, Thursday. No. no. Friday. No. Well, no. next Monday then. Yeah. Yep. Yep, you're fine. Morning or afternoon? Morning. No. <laughs> well, afternoon then. No. Well, when can you make? <laughs> well, I'm free Tuesday after eleven. Can everyone else make that? Yes. Fine by me? Okay. Good. Well, it's next Tuesday, then. Oh, next Tuesday? No, sorry, I can't make that. (laughs) Why did you say you could? I'm sorry, I just turned over two pages. Well, all right, then. The Tuesday after that. Yeah, fine. Yeah. Not for me, it isn't. Why not? Well, I'm meeting Graham. Are you? Oh, yes, you are. I'm sorry, I'm not free then, either. Uh... I'll just never forget how kind he was, and... And and yet at the same time they would try and see what they could get away with. So Graham, I remember, brought in a script one week, which still had the tel- the, the sort of the visual directions in for, for 
a telly sketch and I did I did sum up my courage say, <clears throat> Graham um this does look a bit like a television sketch oh yeah 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 well didn't get made Dirk so you know I'm sure it'll translate <laughs> um that sort of thing but but you know they they uh, how how lucky could I get to have these guys as my comedy godfathers and of course being Barry and Graham and Paul it was a gag based thing and we had um, Julia and Alison who's just a genius um so that was a wonderful start and then um everybody at that time when they came into Lie 10 generally got one of two programs to caretake they either got the news headlines or they got weekending and I was praying I got the news headlines because it was an audience show weekending didn't interest me because yeah. I'd, I'd mm -hmm. been to to the sessions at the Paris and there was a lot of skill involved in it and so on. But again, it wasn't gag based, whereas with an audience in the room, you've got to make them laugh. And so um, in 88, I took over the news headlines um, and with Roy Hudd, Chris Emmett and June Whitfield. And this was at the Paris studio where, as we know, the goons recorded and well, everybody recorded. Mm -hmm the Beatles recorded Led Zeppelin, Glenn Miller's army band, everybody <laughs> and all those, you know, round the horn. So it was really taking the reins of a kind of Rolls Royce comedy machine, as far as I was concerned. And at the same time, learning the hard way that making comedy is a real challenge. And um, on my third or fourth week, I don't know, it's, you know what, I haven't checked the dates on this and I'm really going to have to, because I've got all my, I digitized all my headlines, but uh, it was a couple of weeks before Thatcher resigned. Roy took me um, mm, aside. That, no, was that October, November 1990, I think? Uh, 89? 89? 89. 89. Anyway, yeah. she, um, she resigned. Um, but no, this, this was about a week before, and Roy took me aside. And Roy had very poor eyesight, so when he spoke to you, he kind of got right in your face. <laughs> they said, Dirk, it's, uh, it's not working, is it? And I'd done about maybe six shows, I don't know. And I sort of thought, oh, my God, you know, the bottom dropped out of my world. It wasn't working. Mm -hmm. Because Roy was the nicest person in the world, and it was always a joy to work with him because he just wanted you to be happy and the audience to be happy and everything. So when, he, you know, kind of this, this thing happened and he said, it's not working, and I said, oh, Roy isn't it funny enough he said well it's not it's not there aren't gags he said but the gags don't do anything and I said in what way and he said well you know you can have lots and lots of comic cuts but unless it's got a thread through it people it, it doesn't work as well as it could and I went away and, and looked at, you know, the script, we uh, the, the show we'd done that week and made the best job I could of it and so on. But I realized what he meant was context. You need context. Even if it's a sketch show, you've got to have context and you've got to have a through line with everything where in a sketch, you know, you, you signal where you're going to go and then you go there. It's kind of the rule of good storytelling. Sure. Yeah. You, you tell the audience what you're going to do and then you go and do it. Mm -hmm. And and that sounds simple till you actually try. And then if you add to that, you've got to make them laugh and surprise them on the way. You know, that's that was what he was saying, effectively. So I had like a show or two to try and get my act together. And I was really on tenterhooks because I thought this is going to get me thrown out because mm. I was only on contract. You know, we it wasn't a staff job being a light end producer. 
and then one week I went down to the Paris studio, walked down from uh, Piccadilly Circus Station with me program box and all the bits in and Maureen my lovely PA was came by taxi she had the program box beg your pardon I came just with my script and that last walk down Regent Street you know became I, I've always said to my wife that if I if I die and there's an afterlife and it's a good one I'll find myself walking down Lower Regent Street looking to uh, producer headlines because you know it was this buzz of just doing a show that you know is going to entertain people <laughs> yeah with with people like Roy and June Whitfield you know who's lovely and Chris who's brilliant anyway got there and <laughs> Oleg Stepaniuk one of the writers was out on the pavement having a smoke um and in those days you could smoke inside the building so yeah. it wasn't like I, I, well, what are you doing here what, what's up i like everything all right is there a fire drill no he said have you not seen the news no thatcher's resigned <laughs> oh shit <laughs> and i had this you know i had these scripts and um you know like 40 pages of, <laughs> of satire based <laughs> on the fact that thatcher was still prime minister <laughs> well not quite but a good you know sure. a good 40 percent of the script mm-hmm so anyway, we just toss it out. And the thing about headlines was that the writers would always come down to the performance to see if their, their sketches got laughs and to make sure they got a credit and all of that. And so we rewrote, you know, half the show uh, that morning with the audience queuing up outside and the audience came in on site and we did the show. But the thing about it was because we had to feature this thing that had happened it gave context to the jokes and I just suddenly something switched in my head and I could see what Roy meant and I could see how it worked and after that everything worked fine so it was a really good education in you know comedy having to have context that's a real seat of the pants stuff as well having to attack yeah yeah so okay so you mentioned you've already mentioned at last the go on show 1991 was the 40th anniversary of the first goon show and Mm. um there was a lot of celebration and and commemoration and yeah chief among that was this was this epic documentary which was i i must have i mean obviously i taped it at the time and i must have just worn it out just listening and listening over and over again and it was superb because the the people that you got and the the choice of clips and just everything Mm. worked so how did how did that all come about well, I knew I wanted to do something. I was in light entertainment. I was working at the Paris. I was working with people like Roy, June and Chris. Um, Spike was coming in doing his thing. Stephen Fry, Emma Tom, everybody was, you know, in at that time. It was, you know, late 80s, early 90s. It was quite a a, a fecund time mm-hmm. for radio light entertainment. And, um, and I wanted to work with, do something in traditional comedy. And you know, it became clear that, you know, it was the the anniversary coming up for the 40th anniversary of the Goons. So I, I pitched it. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure, I, I, I can't honestly remember, you know, it could be Mike Poynton came to me knowing I was keen on the Goons or whatever it was, but certainly we got the commission to do an hour long um, documentary and I just wanted to make it absolutely as good as I could get it as good as the goons used to be that's what I wanted it to be mm. and Mike was great at um, 
you know, thinking up angles we could do and so on. And then first order of business was get interviews with Spike and with Harry and well, obviously not with Peter, but with Michael. Mm -hmm. Um, But the other thing was to get someone who really could get their hands on the really good stuff. And that's when um, Ted Kendall came into the picture. And Ted is the person who's restored all the, the CD releases of the goon shows and what he doesn't know about the goons isn't worth knowing. And, you know, technically he's just done this amazing job on them. And, and so Ted became part of the, there were the three of us kind of working on it. And so I could say to Ted, what's the most outrageous effects sequence in the goons. And he'd say, well, which one of the 20 I can think of <laughs> you want to use, you know? Yeah. And so we, it would be the, the, you know, answer the door, you know, after this huge sequence of really bonkers effects or whatever it was. And also what time is it Eccles, you know, what is the most perfect example of a goon, of a section of a goon show? Yeah, that's pretty hard to beat as, you know, sort of perfect, almost perfect. So, you know, that that was Ted brought all this to the thing. And because he was at that time doing the cleanups, he had all, all the shows and he could give me cleanup things. And we spent a long time looking for the whoosh, the perfect goon show whoosh. And right, yeah, you know, because there was a whoosh, but it's always got lots of um surface noise on it because the record the 78 was so knackered that they used. <laughs> and I actually found a clean goon show whoosh, but we could never work out. We thought we'd have to do it, and we were trying to figure out how what is that? Is that is that um a cable being whooshed part of the mic, or is it, it sounds a bit like a roller skate? You know, we were trying <laughs> trying <laughs> all sorts of things to get the whoosh back. It was a bit like Milligan trying to do the sock full of custard, you know. Sure, yeah, literally do what you here see if that works (laughs) anyway and then uh mike Poynton and i went down to spike's house in rye to dumb woman's lane where spike lived um and uh, carpenter's meadow was the house but there was a plaque underneath (laughs) spike foot saying built by the blind architect (laughs) he wasn't very impressed with it and um sheila spike's uh uh, third wife uh, let us in and uh, went through to where Spike was in the living room. And I put up and, you know, put a mic up right in his face. And he said, do I really need to have this? I said, yes, yes, you really do. You really do. And uh, rigged that in a little um, cassette. Or was it a dad? No, cassette uh, recorder, but a good one, professional yeah. one. Yeah. And, um, and we sat with Spike and we talked for about three hours, during which occasionally, you know, tea and cake would appear uh, from... Uh, Sheila and afterwards Spike said he never talked so much about the goon show ever my personality made me want to write a better one each time and I almost succeeded in doing that actually improving the quality of the shows it was a a sort of strange insanity it was my place in heaven I was trying to fight for that's what it was I couldn't stop it you know there was nothing I could do with it I had to write it like I was preordained and he was um you know, great. And Mike was good because Mike could ask. It was good. We sort of tag teamed. So if I was asking something, Mike would think up a different question or, or, or Spike would say something and he would, Mike could come in from another angle, you know, or talk about music, you know, because Mike being a trombonist mm. and Spike mm-hmm. being a trumpeter, you know. So we kind of kept it light and that was great. So it was very, very good. And um, so Spike, talked a lot about uh things and he told me and he said you know how much he loved flywheel he said i'd give my left arm to be in 
your flywheel program. And I said, well, you don't have to give any limbs, just come and do it. <laughs> so that was, you know, that was kind of like, right, definitely got to do this. And I said, well, while we're talking, would you consider ever doing um, uh, something about the goons like we did with flywheel? And he said, I, I don't know. He said, I, I, you know, I haven't got that joie de vivre anymore. And of course we haven't got Peter and, you know, and I said, well, how about if we got you and Harry and Michael and did some of the early stuff? He said, I don't know. I don't know. You know, he, he was, I didn't want to push him because I didn't want to get out of his comfort zone. But at the same time, I was sort of interested. It was basically my idea was what became Goon again. Okay. Right. 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 That, right. that, that I was seeing if he wanted to try that. Yeah. So, uh, so we did that. And the thing was, we also had these interviews with Harry and with Michael and Harry was, you know, lovely because we, I went down to him, his house with, you know, in uh, Surrey and, um, and Myra answered the door and oh, come in, come in, come in. And it was just like being with your favorite aunt and uncle. They were mm. just absolutely lovely down to earth, take you as they find you love you for yourself, unconditionally nice people. And, and it was so uh, easy to chat with. And Harry was great because I, I think probably that's the thing he filled in a lot of the gaps that Spike had left. Um, and, and, you know, Harry said, oh, look, you know, here's the photo and got the photo on Matt. Here's us with Prince Charles. Here's this, here's that sort mm -hmm. of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that was so kind of warm and friendly. And then Michael we got in touch with now Michael was working with one of my fellow producers Andy Aliff he had a, a show going on radio two or something so he's in and out of light tent a lot um, a very good show by the way yeah um, mm -hmm. well it's Michael isn't it I mean you know Michael was a genius in his own way wasn't mm -hmm. he yeah anyway Michael was lovely sort of you know chat <laughs> yeah and um I said would you, you know would you do an interview and he said absolutely and so I booked the Paris for an interview with Mike because in those days we didn't need to um we, we didn't need to pay for our booking so I booked the whole of the Paris just to sit down Michael <laughs> Benteen I thought put him somewhere he knew you know so we were on the stage of the Paris huge Paris and there's just me and Michael and Mike Poynton and we're talking to him about it and it was really a great conversation and and um again you know he would he would reenact bits of osric pure heart you know and then, then we had and then the, the the joke was we had um six um steam trains all at the same time and yeah. he would do all the sound effects and everything yeah it was just so lovely i mean they, they were just like favorite uncles spike was like the edgy uncle harry is like the uncle you go to will be all troubles and michael be the uncle who you went to just to entertain you because they were just so sparking off brilliant <laughs> and um and we had this fantastic interview with with mike and so you know we had so we got uh, we got benteen milligan we've got harry i went to interview angela morley who was wally stott yeah Met Angela, did a great interview with her, and she was fabulous. Brilliant memories of the music because it's such a big part of it. And, you know, talking about Poggy Pogs and the sax player mm. and so on, things that only the band would know kind of thing, you know, and, and, and very interesting. My job was to write cues for the programme, whatever Spike wanted, and to write this arrangement for Max Geldre every week. And so I did that for about two years. Then one day Stanley Black said he didn't want to do it anymore. So I got that opportunity. 
the links between were like Hollywood uh, epics. And uh, couldn't get Max Geldray. He was in the States. Didn't get Ray. I don't know why. Don't know why. Right. But but that was enough. I had an embarrassment of riches. And so I took all of the interviews and I took all of the um, clips that Ted had given me. And I went into a, this is, I, I did this twice. And both times it was a kind of interesting kind of a Damascene moment where I was in this H58, I think it was, this channel where it was just tape machines and a desk in, in Broadcasting House, no actual studio, but that's where you glued together programs. Um, and and the first, the first Damascene moment was doing the Superman on trial thing where I took the whole thing away from the studio managers because now I wasn't technically supposed to edit. But I said, do you mind if I edit this? And I took mm. it away and mixed it myself. And while I mixed it myself, I realized I could make a radio drama sound more like a film mm. than a radio drama by adding music and sound effects, but really layering up. And, and while doing it, thinking, oh, my God, yes, this works. But oh, my God, what a bloody um, rod for your own back it is <laughs> to make stuff this way. But, mm. you know, so and then ended up spending my life doing it. Um, but the other one was this goon show because I took all this stuff up and it really was in pieces. I think I'd done so, a little bit of editing in the office on my Revox, but this was really, I had to turn up and I had till the morning, basically. I said to Les, Leslie, my wife, I won't be home tonight, love. I'm going to be editing this damn thing together because I need to break the back of it. And so I was there for about 10 hours or more, 12 hours maybe from about, yeah, from about six at night till six in the morning. Um, and I cut it together and, I, and, and it was just one of those things where you've got a job and when you get in the zone, you don't want to get out of it because it becomes like a piece of music in your head. You can see where you need to go to next. So you, you oh, that bit of, if I do this bit here, that bit by Harry cuts into this bit of the World War II show, which then if I pick up with Angela talking about the music would lead to this thing by Michael Benteen about. And so it, I was really, two things happened at the end of that. I had a 58 minute documentary about the goons that I was inordinately proud of. That was the first thing. And mm -hmm. the second thing that happened was that I knew I would never, ever, ever do a documentary again if I could possibly help it. <laughs> because there would be nothing else I would ever want to make a documentary about because this was my love letter to the goons. Yeah. Um, and that's it. I, you know, that was it. Apart from the Beatles, and there were zillions of documentaries about the Beatles. But, you know, so that, that was my, that's, that were the, my two big takeaways from it uh, were, that's it, and that's it. I love the way it was, it was like a 58 minute goon show in the sense, well, you've already sort of referred to that, but it had a, a break for Max Geldrin, it had a break for Ray <laughs> Ellington, yeah. and it actually had a, a payoff at the end. So it was, it, it was incredibly well put together and structured. It um, was inspired by them. You know, it was inspired by the best of what they did. Um, mm. You know, that was the thing. So in a way, the gags, it was timing out the gags so that every time, you know, it, just as you got to the end of everything you needed to say about something, something else picked up that, that followed naturally. I had one more, uh, one more, um, Two more encounters with Spike. 
in the intervening 10 year period, the, the year after we did Goon, he really enjoyed the documentary. Yeah, I got a nice note from Norma. But then the, at the end of the following year, Richard Edis, one of the other producers in Light Tent, who tended to be in charge of doing, getting reruns of stuff out there like Goon shows and so on, I, I, somehow I got deputed the job and, um, and the, the case needed to be made to Radio 2 or Radio 4, I think it must have been 2, that Goon shows should be repeated. And so I uh, enlisted Ted Kendall's help and went to Radio 2 and said, look, I can get these not only can we repeat them, but we can repeat the restored, you know, version. I, I remember, it, yeah. Where, where mm. And um, and and they said yes, and so we got it on the air. And I got a lovely letter from Spike, which I have on my office wall here, which says, you know, my dear Dirk, I believe it's you. I have to thank for getting the Goon Show on. Thank God you were there. I don't think anyone else would have thought of it. Which of course they would, but it doesn't negate the fact that it's in that it's a, a lovely letter from Spike. Um, I think it's signed by Janet, not by Spike, by the by the uh, by Norma's PA. But yeah. the fact yeah. is, it's still I know it was from Spike. So that was that. And then at the end of the decade in 1999, I was asked by Radio Four to put together a sort of sound collage, looking forward to the next millennium in our innocence. <laughs> mm, um mm. and uh and uh i and i got lots of celebs to say things so i went down to carpenter's meadow again in dumb woman's lane to spike and i recorded him doing a sort of millennium greeting which was you know rather sweet and nice and he gave me a bottle of wine for he's you know to sort of thank me for uh you know the documentary and the flywheels and this that and the other and also for the millennium and i still keep it i haven't opened it never opened it oh, how coolly it's an australian red he had, he had quite a sizable cellar he did spike yeah he did and it's covered in dust and i think some of that dust must be spike so i i i've put it in a box <laughs> precious precious yes, yeah, yes yeah. i can i can clone him if only dinosaurs didn't get in the way uh so um, talking ones yes yeah oh god don't go there um so you know so we, we kind of stayed in touch in a kind of a way anyway come 2001 50th anniversary and i'm sort of thinking do i want to do you know because i do walk away from projects thinking yeah that's enough of that now but i just thought oh we never did that thing that um you know that that flywheel goon show in the style of flywheel type mm, thing mm. um and of course by then it's 10 years later and spike and harry are nearing the ends of their lives and of course michael had died by then i think yes but um i was a bit ambivalent about doing it and this is a story that i've only told um dan schreiber i think uh the other day when i saw him but uh, who does the um uh, fish podcast, fish yeah, no, yeah no such thing as a fish no yeah. such thing as a fish. but anyway um when i interviewed you know i said to spike when we did the interview for that last go on show i said uh how about doing a, a goon show like we did uh flywheel and would you come aboard and he said oh, i don't think <clears throat> don't think i've got the esprit de corps anymore and so on mm. so i kind of left it i thought well i'll come back you know another time and i said it to harry and harry said hey, i'll do it I'll, I'll do it said harry i'd love to mm. So, oh, you know, one out of three or four. And then Michael Bentine, we did the interview in the Paris about uh, the goons. And then at the end, I said, and by the way, Michael, I've been thinking, you know, would it be possible maybe to resurrect some of the early stuff that really has been lost? Um, and this was before some of the tapes turned up, I should add. Um, 
<clears throat> and uh, you know, would you be interested in cake taking part? He said, well, well, I don't know, I don't know. I'd love to see the guys, you know. He said, no, let me think about it, let me think, let me think about it. So, you know, okay, fine. Anyway, about a week later, the phone rang and it's Maureen got it, my PA, and she said, it's Michael Benteen. Do you want to speak to him? I said, yes, of course I do. So she handed it across and he said, ah, oh, Dirk, yeah, it's Mike uh, Benteen. I said, oh, Michael. Um, he said, um, look, I've been thinking about this idea of yours and uh, I've actually had a word with Peter about it. And he really doesn't want it to happen. Uh, okay. <laughs> and uh, as, you know, by then Peter had been dead for 13 years. Yeah. <laughs> 12 years. Anyway. And because I respected Michael very much and I respected his beliefs, you know, in this sort of thing, I said, okay, okay, well, thank you, Michael. Thank you for thinking about it. Put the phone down. I thought, holy smoke. Well, if Peter doesn't want us to do it, perhaps we shouldn't. <laughs> um, well, he, you know, he, the thing is, though, that he's not, I know Mike was into yeah, that sort of thing, but so, so was Sellers. I mean, Sellers used to, well, yeah. used to claim that he would communicate with the late Larry Stevens. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Okay. I thought it was Dan Lino. Oh, oh well, well that's right. uh, yeah. depending on what sort of mood he was in. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe Larry and Dan. Um, well, look, you know, it, it, the thing was, nothing was going to happen at that time anyway. I was busy with Flywheel and doing other stuff, so it, you know, it, it, it kind of went away. But nine years later, when we <clears throat> came back to a 50th anniversary show, um, I knew Spike and Harry wouldn't do it, and Michael didn't want to. Um, but at the same time, I thought, you know what, it'd be great to try. And so I went to Angela Morley and I said, because the one thing I knew was the music is the key part of a goon show. Mm. You don't know that until you work with it, but the music, it sets up this lush frame in which anything can then happen. So um, went to Angela to Abbey Road too. Okay. Because she was doing a band queue. That's right. So I went down all those stairs in the control room and I'm just freaking out. My God, Angela Morley, Beatles. <laughs> and, and she said, hi. And we chatted and I said, look, I'm, I'm going to put a goon show together. I think if I could, if I can get backing, would you do it? And she said, well, I'm just on my way back to Palm Springs or wherever she lived. She said, but how about you talk to a guy called John Wilson? I said, oh, who's he? And she said, well, he's a Geordie. He's a Geordie musical director, and he's really into what I do. And I'd never heard of John at that point. So I just said, uh, okay, um, could you give me the phone number? And she said, sure. I'll, um, you know, and she emailed her or whatever. Anyway, um, it got me into Abbey Road too, so I didn't mind. Um, I knew I could compile the scripts. That wasn't a problem. I went into BBC archives. I got all of the, I think, first three series of the Goon Show, the crazy people stuff. Because yeah. what I wanted to do was try and do something that hadn't been heard. That was the, in the end, we did something that had been heard over and over. But, you know, that that's the name of the game. Um, and then I had to pitch it. So I went to see Jim Moyer, who was controller radio too at that time. And Jim was ex-television light entertainment, very tough, very capable um, guy who didn't suffer fools gladly mm. and I walked into the office and Leslie Douglas who became controller after him 
um, was actually when I was working back in the day in Radio 2 presentation, my PA. So Leslie was now his assistant. So it was pretty easy to get in to see him. And he said, what what, what have you got, young dude? What have you got? And I said, "Um, I want to do a goon show, Jim. Full orchestra, the lot, at the Playhouse. Um, And I don't think I can get Spike and Harry, but if I got you an A-list cast, uh, would you do it? I think I can get Andy Seacombe, um, who's, uh, you know, his father's son. And uh, Jim sat there for a minute. He said, how much do you think it's going to cost? And I said, top of the head, 16 grand, which in those days was, you know, fair bit of money mm. and uh he said sat there for me he said don't fuck it up that was it <laughs> okay those were the days yeah so um and i'd already rung andy seacom i knew i needed somebody and andy would be my best bet and andy um i'd not actually met in the past but he'd you know he'd been friends with friends of mine so got in touch with him and he was a little bit kind of I, I what have we got here when I rang kind of another you know he, he, a bit wary yeah, shall yeah. we say yeah of overzealous fans and uh, I assured him you know I had I had form and I knew his dad and all of that and and he said mm, yeah okay let me think about it so I, I and I was pretty sure I could get him hey you're not going to you're not going to tell me that he phoned you a week later and said he'd been talking to Peter no, <laughs> wouldn't that be great? <laughs> he did talk to his dad, though. Mm. And Harry said, think of it as carrying on the family business, which I thought was lovely. Lovely. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so I had, yeah, Andy was in. And so I had, so I rang John Wilson mm. and I said, look, you know, doing a goon show with, with, with Wally Stock Cues. And, you know, would you be up for it? He said, yeah, absolutely. He was really keen. And um, and he said, uh, there's so much to tell you on this, Tyler. That's why I'm 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 up, I'm because this is a huge thing in my life for me to have done this show. Um, even now, after all the other things, this still stands out as being a magical little thing. And I would drop everything now if somebody said you could do this show again tomorrow, because we were assembling it was like redoing the manhattan project but instead of a lethal weapon that would kill millions it was a joyful weapon that would delight and surprise millions that was the difference but it was like a sort of chemical experiment it was like cooking a delicious meal you had to get the ingredients at just the right temperatures in just the right amounts to make it really work. And so I'd got John, we needed to get the music. John didn't have the actual sheets and Angela hadn't held on to them. So we had to go into the BBC music library, which at that time I think was in Henrywood house in the basement by broadcasting house. And we had, it was a bit like a sort of library system. It was like a Dewey Decimal system where you found what you were looking for by going through kind of like row 68, shelf 22, thingamajig, goon show cues. And we had no idea what we were going to find at all. And what we found was um, a stack of music manuscript about a foot high um, on a bottom shelf in a very damp part of the basement right and picked it up and it was 
damp, if not wet. Oof. And inside all the, it's all handwritten. It's all the band cues, the, 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 the conductor sheets, Angela's conductor sheets yeah. when she was Wally Stott with fading. I mean, like in very, very faint brown markings on a, on a, on um, stave ruled paper. And um, I said, we've got to get these out of here. Um, Cause there was some sort of rule about not taking stuff out. And so we kind of put them under our coats, John Wilson and I, <laughs> and snuck out of the of Henry Wood house. And I said to John, what are we going to do? He said, don't worry. I, I can't do the Geordie accent. He said, I'll get them transcribed. So off, off he went with this sort of carrier bag full of music manuscript. And in the meantime, we booked the playhouse. And this was actually being done through Celador Productions because I'd by now left uh, Light Entertainment and was working at Celador. Right. Yeah. And Paul Smith, and um, who was the boss, uh, was very, you know, he was hot off the success of Who yeah. Wants to Be a Millionaire. Yeah. Um, but he, you know, he totally supported us doing, which was decent of him. And Steve Springford, um, one of his assistants, uh, you know, sort of management people was, was lovely and, and helped me sort out really vital stuff so I, I got the band and we got the dots so John was squirreled away in his flat in West London working on that with his copyists working out the parts for the reeds and the brass and the daddy do um and then I needed to get two more actors to be Peter and uh and spike and another actor to be an announcer well my idea for the announcer was let me get christopher timothy who's andrew timothy's son mm -hmm. and chris is you know good actor and everything and so on and um uh, got hold of chris through the agent he rang straight back yep i'm in um can i do some voices as well i said well hang on <laughs> hang on mate hang on that's just you know yeah. hold on hold on but anyway so he was sorted and then i needed two voices and what i needed was two people and there were two ways of going at it. I could either pretend it was night, try and pretend it was 1958 and we all turn up in, in suits and, you know, kind of try and pretend to be the people, or we admit that it's not anymore. And we go with people who can deliver a script to an audience yeah. through a microphone. Yeah. And that was the way I went at it. I didn't uh -huh. see any point at then or now in pretending to be Peter Spike and Harry because they're dead and you can't and nobody can be them nobody can mm. be them mm. but what you can do is demonstrate if the london symphony orchestra is given beethoven's fifth to play and play it really really well then you can imagine beethoven himself would be pleased about mm. that and the audience will enjoy it just as much as beethoven's original audience would enjoy it if i can put it in that rather weird crude way sure. yeah and so i had the music i had uh, sound effect I had a script well I had a script of sorts um, which was basically I'd assembled a collection of nuggets which I thought would hang together and then Paul Minette and Brian Levison two writers I'd been working with on the Russ Abbott show who'd written tv stuff like the booze cruise and the piglet files with Nicholas Lindhurst oh, yes um, I remember that yeah well mm. you know two really strong comedy writers who understood the material understood the concept of a gag based humor you know it's it's not going to be armando stuff it's going to be make people laugh on the punchline yes gag yeah. stuff um 
they took the script and polished it up, added some wonderful lines like um, in the warm up about um, David Beckham being very upset he couldn't play Blue Bottle. That was one of them <laughs> that made me laugh. Um, you know, sort of stuff we, because what I wanted to do was punch the script up a bit. Because when we did Flywheel, um, Michael Roberts would ad lib, you know, uh, in at moments where it seemed right. So if a joke fell flat on its ass, he would say that was a that was a very topical joke in nineteen thirty two. You know, whatever it was, and the audience would laugh yeah, at least. It's a good that. ground show. It was. It, it was an excellent ground show. He was wonderful, and it, the best gag he ever did was when he and Chico were supposed to. He and Frank Lazarus playing Chico were supposed to fall into a pigsty. And all the rest of the cast came in around them and were doing <laughs> noises. And uh, Michael, who with Frank is Jewish, just as quick as a flash, went to the mic and said, here are we, two nice Jewish boys surrounded by ham. And the rest <laughs> with the other cast around them. It was, you know, I said at the end of the show, I said, that, that ham ad lib was perfect. And he said, what ham ad lib? I had to remind him. He was so in the zone. Wow. <laughs> well, that's what I wanted to achieve with the goon show. So what I did was I thought I'm just going to go with two, two actors, two comedy actors I know can time a gag, get it into the mic and out to the audience, because doing radio comedy is like the Dam Busters. You've got to skip the bomb on the mic and then have it land on the audience. Mm -hmm. it, it, it can't stop at the mic and it can't go past the mic and just hit the audience. You've got to get the, the, the listener at home and the audience. And I knew uh, that um, Jeff Holland could do that because Jeff has great timing. He knows how to punch a gag. And I knew that Jeff was a Mad King Goon fan because we talked about it when we were working together 10 years before on Inside Sasha. Sasha, yeah. Yeah. Inside Sasha! Look at this photograph. Why? What is it? It is you loitering in the St. Pancreas region in the stomach. <laughs> See? There you are, talking to a half-digested Bakewell tart. <gasps> oh! Look, we, we can talk about this, uh, but not here. Let's go down to your place. It's quieter. Quick, let's take the emergency lift. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and the other person inside Sasha, we talked about the goons, was, was John Glover, who, uh, Mr. Chumley Warner, if you remember the, um, yep. the old uh, Harry... Um, Enfield. Harry Enfield. Harry, Christ punch me when he sees me and <laughs> anyway so um i said would you do it and i you know, asked john to be spike and i asked um jeff to be peter um and and it worked you know it wasn't quite the blue bottle of uh of um sellers and it wasn't quite the mini banister of milligan but it was i needed to make the room work on the night so i've got my cast got the script got the band well so, uh, sorry just to interrupt you there but i think i think yeah. if if you like you said before if you want people just to come in and impersonate do impersonations the audience are going to spend most of the time thinking oh that really does sound like yeah peter sellers doing blood yeah. not whereas you don't want that you want the the audience to be concentrating on the, the gags on the laughs i think you get that thing where you're listening hard for when it's going to stop being as good 
Um, you know, if you've got someone who's really, you know, like Keith Wickham, someone who just can do sellers brilliantly. But the thing is that that wasn't a what was being asked for. And secondly, if I was then doing that, then I'd have a problem because I'd have to get someone uncannily like Milligan. And then Andy was Andy uncannily enough like his dad. You know, it becomes this awful kind of. Yeah piling on of it's like a jenga that eventually it's going to topple over because you cannot get that yeah so yeah, yeah. if yeah. you accept you can't do that if you say no this is us doing this now not them doing it then um you're immediately making it more viable as a as an end product and then what you're saying is so what we have here is this you know going back to the manhattan project analogy increasingly shaky analogy <laughs> of the script plus the band plus the performers plus the sound effects in the script written in by spike mm. and larry stevens who i think a couple of bits had you know some of larry's working that's either going to reach nuclear fission or it isn't but that's what we find out on the night. And and the other thing I did was I spent a long time preparing the sound effects. I sound designed all the effects myself, trying to use some original stuff using the, the brand new clean whoosh I discovered, you mm. know, mm -hmm. inventing a bit of a new blood knock stomach type effect, you know, sometimes taking a classic effect and having a bit of fun with it. Um, um, and then turning up at the Playhouse on Sunday, March, the whatever it was um, in 2001, um, and uh, turning up at lunchtime to do the table read with the cast and uh, with Becca, uh, Wil Wilfredo Acosta's wife, Becky, Becky Nicholson on sound effects on stage. I always, always have spot effects visible because it's yes. the best fun to see someone do it. So we've got this bloody big theater. I've invited Jim Moyer, Leslie Douglas, um, Norma Farns, Spike, Harry, Myra, they've all been invited. And Spike, uh, Spike and Harry were both not well, so couldn't come. So I'm like cursing my luck. And then Norma didn't turn up. And it was like, oh no. Yeah. And then Jim didn't turn up and Leslie didn't turn up. So we had this sort of row of empty seats at the very front of the of the of the audience for the show, which was kind of heartbreaking because because these were people who, if they saw what we'd done, would realize it worked. But that was later on. I, I, I'm jumping ahead. We arrive at the Paris. We do the table read in the dressing room back. And I'm thinking, is this going to work? Is this going to work? I do not know if this is going to work. And then the band turned up with John. Now, this was the first time I'd been with John since we'd gone and raided the music library. And we went into you know, the band got set up on stage and so on and so forth. And there's 22 piece. We've got, you know, uh, five reeds, five, five um, uh, I think it was four each of trombones, brass, rhythm section, additional rhythm and a harpist. I think, wow, wow. harpist. Okay. okay. Yeah. Anyway, and then they did the band call playing through the cues, sight reading the cues and, you know, it's that gobsmacking moment you realize how good true professional musicians really are because i'm a you know i'm, I'm a drummer or sure. drum owner perhaps i should say <laughs> um and these guys just holy smoke and 
they played the blood knock i think it was the blood knock theme and i i was watching them feeling very emotional and i turned around to find jeff holland in tears behind me and we're both in tears because we you you're in the room with this and it's and it's there in the room it's moving the air around you in high fidelity (laughs) and it was that was the moment where i thought i think we might have this i think we might have this yeah yeah and then we did the tech run um and and becky was sliding in all the sound effects and john whitehall the late great brilliant john whitehall in the mobile recording truck outside i think it was the pace mobile who um i cannot praise too highly as one of the genius studio managers who you know if, if only people recognize their work the way they do the goon show to realize how good these people were mm. john um putting it all together in the truck with the pre-recorded effects and so on and there are uh, and, and the band on stage and then the guys come on and we rehearse stuff and i'd got a f- friend lizzie glassborough who's um, an opera singer who, who's a trained opera singer to come and do uh, take me back to vienna for the um for the opening and 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 the thing about it was I had to get it all on stage. The opening of things, the opening of anything is a really important part of it. And I knew I had to, this was really interesting. How the hell do I get the goons on stage? Then I know they're not the goons, but it's the goon show. And what I need to do is hit this audience with something that totally says, this is it. This is a fully fueled <laughs> death star <laughs> we have built here. And, um, and so I came up with the idea of doing a, a, a medley of the Goonge songs. And so I took the original songs and edited them together and I sent it to John. And I said, could you, you know, could you do an arrangement for this like this? And he said, yeah, sure. In his, yeah, Geordie accent. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, and that's what <clears throat> I thought I would do. So, so the first thing that happened out of everything was the was was this big thing and the and i knew i wanted to open it with the big band opening to i'm walking back was christmas mm. because mm-hmm. that is one of the best big band cues i've ever heard in my life the <laughs> opening to that yeah. anyway well you know we did the tech run with the band and we couldn't get we had lance ellington singing because obviously ray had passed on mm. And we couldn't get Max Geldray because he was too old to fly over. So we got a guy called Harry Pitch, who um, Harry, somebody said, oh, he did the he did the um, the harmonica on the Navy Lark. But I don't think he did. So I'm not. Harry was sweet guy, sweet guy. And he had dots for crazy rhythm. (laughs) He never played it twice the same way um but bless him it was he was still in there um we did the tech run went okay went and had a beer around the corner um came back audience started coming in and it was the weirdest audience you've ever seen in your life so you get sterling moss comes in wow. and then martin chambers the drummer with the uh, the pretenders with chrissy hind um and then um Barry Cryer and Dick Vosborough walk in. <laughs> of course. Yeah. And Barry says, Ah, oh, Dirk, we've come to bury you, not to praise you. <laughs> you bastard bastard. 
<laughs> so he goes off to the bar and then and my mum came and her neighbours and my wife Leslie bought our little boys and so on and so forth and I'm just thinking oh my god I hope this I hope it works and then um uh Steve Punt walks in with Mitch Ben so you know and they're kind of you know you know your mates are there to support you but they're also interested to see mm. if you fall flat on your ass mm. um and so and so we did the show and what I did was I rigged it so that the main tab was down. So we just had three mics downstage on the, on the very front of the stage. So all you saw were the curtains shut and three mics, nothing else. So the audience in the room did not know anything other than there were three microphones and we were doing a goon show. And I came out on stage and I did this warm up, which was really way too long. Um, but I wanted to thank people and I wanted to sort of hark back to John Browell's warm up, warm up for the last Goon Show of all. Yes. So, you know, there were aspects of that as well. And of course, all my thanks, you know, I want to thank Norma and Spike and Harry <laughs> and Jim Moore. And there's no one there. The, the front row is empty. And that hurt because I thought, oh, we put so much into this. Yeah. Anyway. And then, you know, I said, no, no one can recreate the goons. Um, think of this as a genetically modified tribute band um, and got a laugh. And then I said, and, for, and if you're still wondering what we're going to be doing here or something like that, I said, here's what it's all about. And I walked off stage. And as I walked off stage, Steve Springford in the wings pulls madly on the tabs to get them up. And the band hits this. And it was just electric because the whole uh, audience sort of sat back in their seats as if as if we put an accelerator mm. on the thing it's mm. like a, a milligan <laughs> gag really um and this band hit it and then they the, you know the guys came on with with lizzie doing the take me back to vienna and all of that and and just it flew it just flew and i cannot the, the CD is as good as I could get it in terms of, you know, sounding really edgy and on it and e energetic and so on. But really, you had to be there. Mm. And it was that was the thing. It, 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 we, we recreated the Manhattan Project of comedy and it bloody worked. And what I really was sad about was that Spike wasn't there to mm. see how all the ingredients he put together worked still worked mm. with a with a really really good band and so on and um but he heard it afterwards he heard it afterwards and he was he he norma told me he he threw he was thrilled he really really loved oh, it's it lovely yeah who is that strangely dressed knave aloft in the crow's nest abel seaman eccles why is he wearing a cloth cap morning coat fishnet stockings and a loincloth you don't think we'd let him go up there naked do you <laughs> Mr. Prime Minister, sire. Yes. The messenger approaches. <laughs> and passes. <laughs> but wait. Wait, Jim, he returns. <laughs> but not for long. King Ethelbert rallied his subjects for the defense of their country. Oh, men, have no fear, have no fear. I, Ethelbert, your king, will lead you. I, Ethelbert, your king, will raise my sword in the forefront of your ranks. <laughs> I, Ethelbert, your king, will... The Vikings are coming! I, Ethelbert, your king, will now abdicate. 
prisoner have something to say? Yes. Anything else? No. Thank you. <laughs> Has the court reached a decision? No, we're tired and we want to go home. Are you a plastic surgeon? No, I'm flesh and bone like everyone else. <laughs> Uh, and years afterwards, Jeff had a party for like his umpteenth year in showbiz. And it was just, you know, friends and relations and David Croft and Jimmy Perry were there and lots of Heidi High folks and, and all of that. And Leslie and I were invited. And, um, and I said, you know what, this is lovely of you, but what are we doing here? He said, you gave me the happiest single day I've ever had in the theatre in my life. And I, oh. I, I, in a show. And I mean, you know, it doesn't get better than that, does it? Really? No. no. Of course, he may check it when you when you he comes on Goon Pod, he might say to you, "God, bloody do it, what a dick. But you know, I'm hoping <laughs> well, maybe he maybe he says that to everyone he works with. <laughs> that, you, you know what? Mind you, it would have been a much bigger party. If, if <laughs> but a couple of uh, but if I can finish the story briefly, yeah, sure. Because I carry this in my heart every day, Goon again. I, I loved doing it so much. Um, and I'm so proud to not only be one of the last producers to work with Spike on a live show because he came to do a flywheel size from flywheel with yes. us. In fact, two show flywheel size from flywheel and was great. But also to actually have produced the Goon Show, which is, you know, a, a real one with with all the the bells and whistles. Yeah. Um, uh, and afterwards, um. I said to, I went to see Norma a few weeks later and I said, look, you know, we could do this. You know, we could do the Goon Show. And she she was friends with um, Bill Kenwright, the theatre in Presamria. Mm. And she sent him the thing and um, the, the tape of the thing and told him what I'd done. You know, she wasn't there, but she, you know, she relayed it all. And um, that Christmas, Christmas 90, uh, Christmas 2001, he was advertising Goon again, the Goon Show, the, a full Goon Show with orchestra at um, Windsor Theatre Royal, produced by Dirk and, you know, all of this and, and Norma and all of this. And it was going to, and I, I didn't know it was happening. No one told me. So my neighbour came around with a Windsor Theatre Royal booklet saying, look, look, you know, with band to rival Wally Stotts. I thought, holy shit, he's, you know, taking the bait. Anyway, long story short, it didn't happen and it kept on not happening for the next 10 years or so. Um, and I went, I rewrote the idea of the show three or four times, you know, pitching the theater to Norma, um, wrote a one act play about Grafton's attic, which then morphed into uh, the, the second half, which was a classic goon show, Mm -hmm. Then the idea of presenting classic goon shows, um, you know, uh, as per, but, 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 but never, you know, tr never in, in costume or anything like that. This was going to be, we are now in whatever year it was doing these classic scripts, the way they were designed. This was yes. never going to be dressing people up yes. in fat suits to be Harry or nonsense like that. Um, 10 years, 15 years went by. Nothing was happening. And I think Andy Seacombe and I had one last stab at trying to put it on about five years ago where we were talking to people about doing it on the Edinburgh Fringe. And the thing was, as soon as you do that, they're saying, well, who can you get to be in it? And I'm saying, well, Andy Seacombe and, you know, oh, can't we have Bill Bailey or 
Eddie Izzard or something like that, you know. Yeah. And it's like, no, that's not the point. That's not the point. This the 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 goon show's the star of this. I mean, and you know, and Andy, who's brilliant, you know, is saying this as well. Um, deep in my heart, if I could do, and I know exactly what I would do now as well, and it would be basically, I'd call it the goon show in concert because it would have to have the music. The music absolutely has to be in there. Mm. Um, so I'm copywriting that. Uh, anyone who hears this, you're under NDA, <laughs> the goon show and concert. But I think that's how I would do it. And you present basically, you know, kind of like a, a script that hangs together through two halves and you have a bloody big band up there and you do it right and you don't compromise. And yeah. of course, that's too expensive to do because, you know, live music costs money. But that would be the way, that would be the only way I, I could do it, having done it that way once before. So it'll, it'll never happen. But that was the night that we realized that what Spike and Peter and Harry and Benteen back in the day and all those producers, Peter Eaton, John Browell, Charles Chilton, what they did was they put together something which is pretty much invincibly bulletproof as long as you follow the ingredients closely. Yes. Just very quickly, um, do you want to talk about Pakoon? Oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, kind of like it's been, it had been a long time since I'd, you know, been near any Milligan material, apart from my own listening pleasure anyway. Um, and um, I have a little production company called Perfectly Normal. I don't do a lot through it, but when, you know, there are three or four of us who, who, who kind of are directors of it. And when we have a job that could be submitted to the BBC, we do. And, um, and Ian Billings, uh, the uh, excellent writer and actor, yeah. Um, had the idea of adapting Pakun and Pakun, you know, has been one of my favorite books since forever. Um, and it didn't occur to me really that it needed adapting because I knew that there was the vinyl version that Spike and uh, folks did in the 70s, was it? Or 80s? Uh, yeah, yeah. Like one of them. Yeah. Um, but I knew, but, oh, and I went to see there was a production of it at, uh, the, at the, um, the theater in Leicester Square and, um, and I kind of, I came away slightly dissatisfied, but everybody worked really hard and so on. But I felt some of the gags, it's very hard to do the scale of that closing sequence, the big Boy Scout concert in mm. the old people's home. Mm. Um, and so when Ian came in with this script, the idea of doing the, the adaptation, it was like, oh yeah, let's do this. Let's do Pakun and... And then it was a case of, you know, he came up with a script, which was great. And it really managed to boil down the best bits of the book, but then who the hell to get in it. And that was when the stroke of genius was, I don't know if it was Ian or Dave Morley who produced it said, um, how about Barry Cryer? And it's like, <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Home and dry. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Back, back <laughs> uncle Baz. So that was sorted. And then, you know, who could we get it? And I, I've worked, a fair bit with Ed Byrne. Uh, he came in on the, the Six Hitchhiker series and mm. and was great. And uh, he's he's a huge enthusiast for many things, including Spike. And Ed was coming in. And then who else can we get? And we got um, Pauline McLean. You know, yeah. <laughs> who who wouldn't want Pauline for anything Irish because she's <laughs> well, actually she's a brilliant actress either way. Um, 
and um and just a lovely cast and and um jane milligan mm-hmm. spike's daughter who I, who i've been friends with for years but finally got to work with um she she's, and, been, she's been on this oh she's a fine 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 person mm. and um and so we 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 had Pakun, we did Pakun, and it was a real challenge because I wanted that ending to be as big as I could get it. The whole of that stupid concert with the De Dion engine pumping out fumes and what have you, and the whole business of the, of the maid, of the, of, of the um, IRA guys and the maid going up and down in the elevators and mm. just the complete madness of it. It was a real it was a real challenge and um and i was really proud of it at the end of it i felt i felt yes i think we've done it justice it was the audio movie of pakun i wanted to make and i think we managed it listen that's just, we we could we could i could sit and talk to you for hours you've been very generous with your time dirk and you've not long recovered we well, still still what you're still sort of suffering the after effects of covid yeah weird cramps and Mm. stiff neck from hell yeah really mm. stupid but well, the did... brain fog is better oh good good as i say i'm you know i'm indebted to you for coming on and i'd love to have talked in detail about or at least talked about you know things like inside sasha things like night class which i enjoyed and also i'd love to have done you know talk more about flywheel but maybe well, you know yeah, maybe go, in the always, you know, go have a round two sometime if, if you run out of more interesting people I'm happy to come back. All right. I'm going to hold you to that. I look forward to it, Tyler. It's been lovely chatting and um, I hope you get something editable out of it. Thanks again to Dirk. Thank you for listening. If you haven't heard the show before and want to go back and, and listen to the rest, there's at least 60 in the archive. They can be found in the usual places, iTunes, Spotify, uh, Stitcher and, and all the rest. I will be back next week with a a show about a particular film i won't say which one yet but um, please tune in or download or whatever it is you do yeah you don't tune in podcast you for god's sake anyway as i said thank you again for listening see you next week bye <laughs>